So maybe at this point, um, Ashley, can I hand over to to you to lead the next discussion because I think it is it's, it actually flows quite nicely from the point of view of how we use because I mean it is is actually Stephen's point about there's two parts to this this sort of technology element of our discussion today. I mean the one is um, how we can be using technology better in the delivery. Um, of, of education, of actuarial education, but the, the second part is now in terms of all of these tools and, and techniques which um, Dale has touched on is, is how do we incorporate those things into our um, curriculum and, um, and the level of detail that we need. So um, is it a case that we need to be practitioners or do we need to be in a position to understand what is possible in different fields and, and how do we strike that balance between needing to be a jack of all trades and a master of none as opposed to being able to know what the tools are and when to call those experts in. So no, no small questions for you to answer then, Ashley. For those of you <laughs> who don't know me, I'm Ashley Theophanides. Um, I'm a partner in um, the Deloitte Actuarial and Advanced Analytics practice. Um, um, I'm also the chairman of the um, Wider Fields Forum um, here in South Africa, so looking to see how we can be more relevant um, in the future, but then also I've recently taken on um, as the chairperson of the IAA's Big Data Advanced Analytics working group reporting into the scientific committee. So um, in my presentation today, I'll be touching on three elements. Um, the first is um, just taking you through a brief presentation I put together for the IAA committee, specifically looking at um, what the various programs are that are currently in place globally, and there are three programs that I'll be going through at a very high level. Then um, the next part of the presentation will be taking you through some of the 2018 survey results that the um, ASA um, Widerfields Committee um, collated quite recently. So for those of you who are at the CPD Day, my apologies, you'll be seeing it for the second time, but I think it's quite important to see those results. And then thirdly, um, I will just be taking you through my thoughts on education, on advanced analytics, as well as, as how we future-proof ourselves. And to be honest with you, um, my, my biggest concern is that I don't think we have the answers. I think we are going down a journey. And as we go down this journey, and as industry is being disrupted, whether it's via exponentials, digital, et cetera, et cetera, I think um, we'll have a better sense as to how to adapt ourselves. And some of the comments that were made in the earlier session, I think is absolutely vital, is that ultimately, as an actuary, I believe I was taught how to think. The education system taught me how to think and apply myself um, in terms of solving business problems. What technology we use in order to deliver on that is something different, whether it's SAS or Python or R or whatever the case may be, it is transferable. Um, our ability, though, to um, support our students in order to, to think and apply themselves, I think, is our challenge. Um, and the more we do that, I think the more adaptable our students will be going forward. 
Sure, this is proving to be quite a challenge, hey? Okay, so um, from, a, um, from an IAA point of view, as you can imagine, there are a number of different professions with very, very different perspectives of what the role of an actuary is. And um, one of the interesting elements around it is that someone, someone believes, or some professions believe, that actuaries only belong in insurance. And that's where we should stay. We shouldn't go anywhere else. We sh and and we, sh we shouldn't even bother with this health insurance stuff, by the way. <laughs> we should just... <laughs> <laughs> we, sh we, we should just stick in insurance, and 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 this is very much um, f from some of the European professions who feel that there's enough work, um, and and if we are going to explore outside of our realm of modus operandi, we can maybe play in the risk space. But that's that's pretty much where we need we, we need to play. Then. On the other spectrum, you have, I would say, the Americans, who are very much forward in terms of trying to get us involved in um, other areas of practice, whether it's outside of insurance um, or um, whether or not it is quite broad in terms of the type of things that we do. So I think um, taking that into account, it's, it, it is a challenge because where you have these very um, diverse views of what our role is, how, how do we <laughs> try and bring that together? And the reason why this is important is, is that as um, the IAA committee, we wanted to create a serotype qualification, which basically meant either practitioners who are qualified actuaries now or else um, um, students who want to um, almost um, get certified as a data analyst or as a person who is um, proficient in advanced analytics could get this qualification and have it as part of their CV and allow us to um, position ourselves go going forward. Um, unfortunately, um, what I didn't realize was that instead of having a conversation about how and what we should um, get ourselves educated on, the conversation turned to why on earth would we like a serotype qualification because we don't think it was successful? Which, which, is, which is interesting because that is their perspective. Um, and um, because of that and the very diverse perspectives that is currently in place, um, we've actually decided for now we're going to drop it. Um, oh, it's getting a bit hectic. <laughs> um, and, um, and for that reason, we will be looking at how we support the various professions who are interested in getting their students as well as practitioners more involved um, in data science and advanced analytics machine learning to, to ultimately um, use that as, as a method to, to educate our members going forward rather than using a serotype qualification given that it's very difficult to get everyone on the same page. So, um, as mentioned, um, these are the three things that I, I will be, be talking to. Um, just also to state that um, in the last section, they are my personal thoughts. They are not that of ASA or of the IAA or of Deloitte.
Okay, so as mentioned, um, these were the three programs that we looked at in terms of assessing the, um, the serotype qualification. As we went through the process, we then mapped out all the, um, the respective elements that is included in the qualification. As you can see, this is specifically around the German qualification being DAV. And um, what they would be looking at doing is incorporating more statistical methods into their base education program. And um, from a um, technology point of view, they would then, of course, be um, looking at focusing on R. If we look at the society of actuaries, um, again, there is the incorporation of um, the predictive analytics module in their base education program. And then they also have this predictive analytics certificate dealing with a number of elements from um, problem definition, um, program management, data design, visualization, data exploration, um, model development, and validation. And again, looking um, at using R. Personally, I, I think that the predictive analytics certificate, in terms of the breadth of elements that are covered um, in this particular program, is, is actually really, really good because it deals with a number of elements. In terms of ICAS, um, specifically, um, they have the Predictive Analytics and Data Science Certificate, which again covers a number of elements. Um, the, the aspect of this that I'm quite um, positive about is the case study, because I think in order to learn how to use this type of information and project um, an answer that makes sense within the context of the case study, it's important to work through the data, establish the dependencies, um, establish how best to use data um, from an ethical point of view, and the governance around that is also absolutely vital. In addition to that, they also have the ethics and professionalism aspect, which is incorporated into their program. They also have this predictive analytics um, experienced um, practitioner, which is um, basically a bridging type program where if you um, are already performing this type of work and you want to get yourself accredited, rather than going through the entire um, program, you can do an exam and they can establish whether or not you are proficient or not. The, the other nice thing about the case study is even though they are the casualty actuarial society, they are looking at incorporating um, case studies that aren't just based on um, general insurance. They are looking at other elements such as they asked me if I would help them with a telco example. Um, and so forth. So I think they are trying to look at other industries outside um, of general insurance. Then in terms of the program itself, as Roseanne mentioned, um, um, not just the actual Society of South Africa, but these guys are also pretty much computer-based, um, just one or two um, paper-based exams. Um, as you can see, they also have um, two months available for the case study. The interesting thing here is, is that based on the case studies that have started, they found that it is um, quite a challenge to get the, um, the case study done in that time period. So they have been extending that as well as giving um, more support to the students who, who are performing the case studies. I think the ability to, to absorb the information and absorb um, the modeling techniques have been um, a bit of a challenge. Then um, if we, um, I'm going to skip this one. Um, 
Then what's quite interesting is um, from an actuarial and non-actuarial perspective, we can see that um, both the Society of Actuaries as well as ICAS are providing accreditation um, for both actuaries and non-actuaries, which I think is important um, because it allows us to associate ourselves with individuals who are um, maybe not in the actuarial profession but are also data science in order to strengthen the teams. Are there any specific questions at this point? Uh, worth commenting that um, in terms of the IA syllabus, which was approved last year, we should see all the full member associations bringing in some element of data analytics into their syllabuses um, over the next three or four years. Um, so, you know, there's a, certain, there's a certain level or certain content which associations should be covering. Um, I mean, there is a pivot of latitude that will be given, but we would expect that at least some of the beta, basic uh, data analytics, statistics, and possibly machine learning will, will come into all the um, fully qualified actual qualifications within the next three or four years. And we bring it in next year in, into the 2019 syllabus. That's fantastic. Any, any other comments or questions? The next part of the presentation um, deals with some of the results of the um, 2018 survey. So this was presented at the CPD day um, two days ago. Um, I won't be as entertaining as, as Lucas who presented this, but um, he may have. <laughs> no, you don't understand. He insulted everyone. <laughs> um, I will have the more subdued version. <laughs> um, Yes, okay, so so really um, what the aim of the survey was, was to get a, uh, an idea of um, the level and the use of data analytics and machine learning and, and various techniques within the profession. We, this is the second time we've run the survey. We previously had it in uh, 2016, um, and unfortunately we did have fewer respondents this time round than last year, but we do believe that's because um, when we ran it in 2016, there were, um, it was round about the time of the convention, so we were able to hound a number of people in order to, to participate. So we might be um, looking to update this if we can get more people to participate. The overall structure of the survey has remained more or less the same. So looking at some demographics, um, looking at um, the type of techniques that are being used, um, as well as um, perceptions around the usefulness of, of the information itself. So as you can see, we had 166 respondents relative to the 200-odd last year. Okay, then um, looking at some of the results. If you don't mind, I'm going to sit. It's a little bit difficult to see. Um, so in terms of the, the results itself, you can see that um, we try to get a sense of what practice areas um, people were involved in. And you can see that the majority of the respondents um, were actually in the life insurance and in risk-taking entities, so the, um, the bar on the left, um, as well as general insurance and so forth. When we looked at job description, um, there was also um, the majority being analysts, but we did have some individuals across the manager, senior manager, and executive levels. 
When looking at um, the size of teams, or I think I might have missed one, there we are, at the size of team, we can see that there weren't that many um, respondents who had analytics teams between 10 and 20, but there were quite a few small teams and then um, um, some larger teams. When we looked at um, the adoption of improved analytics within the organization, we can see that um, it's interesting to see how executives believe that they were the majority uh, <laughs> responsible for, um, for pushing that. So clearly, um, with 70% of them believing that they are ultimately the ones that, that are driving this, this in their organization, must be in that they genuinely believe in it. Um, well, when we look at the other levels, um, there was a greater proportion aligned to senior managers. So basically, the next level who was driving these insights into the organization. When looking at the type of information and, and data sources, we can see that a very large proportion are still very much based, um, basing their data on Excel files and CSVs, which, um, which is quite consistent with what we saw um, in 2016, but I, I am a bit surprised that it hasn't quite moved, the dial hasn't quite moved as much as we'd hoped. Um, there's also, um, of course, the traditional um, data sources or, or databases such as SQL servers and, and so forth still very much being used. Um, and then um, we can see that um, from a big data point of view, there's very little of those technologies being used. I do, however, believe that um, the, the use of big data platforms is important. Um, however, um, there's a time and a place for that. There's still a lot of information and a lot of insights that can be gained by using the traditional databases if one just actually mines that information and knows what's there. If we then look at external data sources, we can see quite a big use of Google Analytics, Facebook, and, and others. Then when it comes to um, data-driven decision-making, um, so we can see the, the 2016 and 2018 results, the 2016 being the red and 2018 um, being the gray. Uh, we can see that um, from a decision-making point of view, there has been an increase. So that's positive. So um, people believing that their organizations are using data more and insights more in order to drive the future of their organizations. In addition to that, they also believe that there will be far more use of data in order to drive decisions in the future. So that is positive. Um, when looking at... Um, um, at, at some of the, the other aspects between 2016 and, and 2018. If we look, so the one on the, on the right is 2016 and 2018 on the left, um, we can see that there is an increase in terms of using data all the time in terms of um, future strategic decision making. So it is all moving in the right direction for those who are actually using this, this information. When we, um, when we look at industries, so that's the graph on the right, um, we can see that, um, and, and this was one of the controversial <laughs> comments that was made at the CP CPD day, was that there, if we look at the distribution between the different practice areas, life insurance is generally um, not using it as much as, as some of the other industries. And um, 
in the, some of the discussions that, that, that we had, it, it, it was interesting to see that um, some of the individuals who were in the audience that work for life insurance companies felt that the longer term decision making um, requirements is one of the reasons why they're not using it as, uh, as often. I think that is something that would need to be unpacked a little bit more in the future. Then in terms of the, um, the familiarity as well as the actual usage of information. So the way in which this graph has been designed is that um, on the right hand side is those that regularly use data science techniques in the production of their actual findings while on the other side of the graph we have, um, I've heard of data science as a buzzword but I don't know what it means. So again between the two periods we've definitely seen an increase in the proportion of respondents who are familiar with data science and have started to use it in their in their organization. If we look at the middle the middle bar, you can see there has been quite a big increase from 17% to 28% who have at least tried it in their work. So I think we are moving forward in the right direction in terms of some of the um, some of the uh, uh, the information um, being shared as well as people being a little bit curious as to how they can use it going forward or at least trying it relative to the traditional techniques that they know. Then when we look at um, the, some of the techniques specifically, so we can, again we've compared this to 2016 and 2018, so the graph on the left is looking at aspects such as data visualization, regression, GLMs, decision trees and so forth, and in general we can see an increase in the use of those techniques. The, um, the very positive aspect that I think um, we can take away from this graph specifically is the data visualization because I think we often use so much information and if we think back to communications about how to communicate with people, I think the visualization techniques is a mechanism for us to communicate better with with, within our organizations as well as with those that may not be that familiar with, um, with data and information um, at large scales. Um, on the right hand side, um, we can then look at how this compares between different practice areas. So the red is life insurance and pensions, um, the grey is general insurance and health, um, and the um, yellow is non-insurance. So here we can see that general insurance and health use um, quite a bit of the, the main techniques. When we, however, look at some of the, the life insurance respondents, their level of usage of these techniques, as we saw uh, um, in some of the earlier graphs, is definitely the case. So they're not using it as much as, um, as the general um, insurance, health um, care, as well as non-insurance guys are using it. If we then look at what people are using it for, we can see a lot of the times um, it is around predictive modeling, telematics, and, and so forth. But when we look right at the bottom, we can see um, analytics not really, um, or big data machine learning not really used in the reserving space. Then, um, 
again, if we break it down by the respective industries, again, the red is life insurance and pensions, gray is general insurance and, and health, and um, other is yellow, we can see that um, the, the main reason or the main benefit seen is that greater insights into data. Um, and how we make decisions, as well as improved value to customers being some of the, the big elements coming through. Uh, we also see that um, from a enhanced financial performance, general and, and health felt that that was also a big element driving the use of analytics. Then, um, if, we, if we look at um, how this compares um, from a level point of view, again, the larger proportion being improved value to customers and greater insights coming through quite consistently across the, the various um, levels. Then when we look at barriers um, to entry as to why um, people aren't using advanced analytics, between the two periods of 2016 and 2018, um, shortage of skills is still one of the biggest elements, followed by um, lack of perceived need. Um, um, in 2016, while in 2018, it's lack of system and infrastructure. When we break that down by um, the various levels, again, quite consistent. Um, interestingly, um, for those that mostly use it, they, they felt that um, the lack of perceived need is, is, is one of the reasons, which is maybe why they're only mostly. While those that don't really use it at all, they just don't think the skills are available. <laughs> Then when we look at the regular users, so basically what we did was um, we pulled out the information specifically to those that use it quite often. And um, we can see that again quite consistent between the two different periods, so um, uh, between the whole population, sorry, and the regular users, CSV and Excel, as well as um, your traditional databases being the main source of this information. If we then look at what are they using, so Excel, definitely there, um, Python. So uh, for those of you um, who um, were able to join the sessional that we had about a year ago, we had one specifically on Python, which I believe was very well received from the feedback we got. So hopefully um, the committee had some involvement in getting people using that a little bit more, um, as well as Power BI and Tableau. So again, quite consistent in terms of the use of visualization techniques um, coming through in the choice of the, of the information um, and, and software there that's being used in order to share that information. Then when we look at the techniques used um, by the regular users, so data visualization, um, quite a big element, um, regression techniques, GLMs, decision trees, and so forth. On the other side of the scale, um, social network analysis, and that is not really um, used by, um, by the regular users at this point. Then from an education point of view as to where do they get skilled? So the largest proportion, as was seen in 2016, was really much by, by online courses. Um, however, if we look towards the middle of the graph, we can see that there's been quite a nice increase in learning from actuaries. So I think um, that that is a positive that we can take away between these two periods, is that um, we, we are sharing the knowledge amongst ourselves, which is fantastic. And then um, I thought the increase in the use of books was also quite interesting. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so in, in summary, um, it is positive to see that there is an increase in people um, using and are interested in, in data analytics. 76% of respondents regularly use data science techniques. Um, the majority of them are still using the more traditional databases and CSV files and so forth. Um, and um, there, there is an increase in terms of adoption and the belief of the value that um, analytics does provide um, and analytical techniques do provide uh, within their jobs. Okay, so before I move on to the last section, um, are there any questions or comments? Uh, thanks. thanks, Ashley. I, I've, I've sat through this, this twice and I found your presentation more useful than Wednesday's. But, but to me, um, I, I worry about the statistical credibility of any analysis between 2016 and 2018. So almost all of that I'll dismiss, what I, be, sim simply because there's been a drop of a third in respondents. So um, it, the, it, we, we can't make a comparison between the two years. We can look at each in isolation. I think we have to ask ourselves the most important question is, if data is growing, and we, why is there a third less roughly of respondents? Is it because they regard data now as just part of the normal course of business um, and, and, and it's not that important? Or is the smaller proportion of uh, the, the, the population out there uh, thinking that they, they, they're in data if their skills going elsewhere? And that, I think that when we do these surveys again, we've got to do it um, and have a better response rate. Um, so identify who we want to have respond um, and, and then maybe track them over, over time. So I, I, I don't think, but so, so in summary, the 2018 survey, we can compare what are the tools that people are using, because those are, and we can say the people who responded use these tools, and that's quite useful, and they learnt in the following places. But I don't think we can draw any conclusions that the profession is using data more or doing anything like that because of the big drop off in the number of people uh, that responded and the fact that they are two separate um, <coughs> groupings. So, so I do think that um, hopefully we can use the convention order to get more people to respond. So that would help. Having a longitudinal study would also be helpful. Unfortunately, it was anonymous, the 2016 study, so it would be very difficult to know who responded. Um, it would be the honor system. It's like, did you respond? <laughs> and and um, I'm not quite sure how successful we'll be. But I do agree that... Um, um, the, the ability to make any kind of statistical inference from this is, is quite limited, but I do think we are moving in the right direction, or hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. Then, if I can share some of my thoughts with you. Um, and again, to mention, um, these are my thoughts, and no one else's thoughts. So, I have a few questions um, because as we, as we look at those results, I mean, we, we had big data platforms, we had machine learning techniques and so forth, but what is the role of an actuary? What do we want the role of the actuary to be? And in the same way that, for example, the um, uh, German Association only believes actuaries should be in insurance, what do, what do we want? as ASA, um, both from a competence point of view, so where do we, so do we want our actuaries to be as technically competent as a, as a techie, um, 
or do we still want to focus on the insights and taking those insights and making meaningful changes? Um, the traditional versus not non-traditional areas. So it's, it's both from a competence as well as from a um, as well as from an industry point of view. Given that, what education is needed and what are the core requirements of an actuary of the future? I do believe that as different industries change and as disruption enters those industries, we'll have more clarity. Um, and then for those that are in the system, what should CPD cover? Based on the feedback that we're getting um, as a committee is that people really, really like the simulated learning. So, for example, the Python um, session we had was very well received and, we, and we're hoping to have, have more of those. But then again, um, which, which technology do we choose? Um, and to what extent do we apply that? So on that, what is our strategic position? and what is the role of the actuary of the future. Some other things that I think we need to think about, and, and, and these thoughts are based on my own personal experience, as well as the experience that I've had speaking to um, the IAA committees. So this isn't just a South African perspective, or just my perspective is that the actuarial teams are changing, is that having just core actuaries working by themselves, I think those days are over. The incorporation of, of other quantitative skills, technology skills, is going to need to be part of that team of the future. And I think that's already happening in many organizations. There is a question in terms of the return on investment that we get from actuaries or actuarial students. I know as an employer, um, every year we need to consider how many of our slots do we take for, for actuarial students and how many of them do we want to give to other quantitative skills or technology skills. And I'm sure that that's not just me. I also know from speaking to a number of, um, of, of people on the IAA committee that both in Canada, the US and, and Australia, that they are reducing their number of students that they're taking in, or their grads, and replacing that with quantitative skills. And the reason for that is, um, there, there are many, many reasons, but um, some of the re reasons is around not just the salary expectations, but also the amount of time that they off. And that is something that, that, that we need to think about. In addition to that, um, there is very much still an, an, uh, an entitlement mentality. Um, now, one could question, is that a generational thing or is it a generational thing within some of our actuarial students that are coming out of universities? Um, things about, I am special, I don't want to do this type of work, I want to do traditional work, I want to... Um, I don't want to do analytics. Analytics is nonsense. This is not actuarial work. All of these things are currently being said and, and really making us question how many actuaries we should be bringing in at the junior levels. The problem is, is that I believe there's significant value that we all believe we get from the very more senior actuaries. But if we don't bring the junior ones in and train them, how are we going to have future senior actuaries? And that is a bit of a dilemma.
that we're having. Did you want to say something? Sorry, I wanted to agree with you 1,000% on this slide, okay? Um, I think that this is an enormous risk to our profession, and I think that's where the chartered actuarial analysts and all the ancillary things come in, and I think there's, and to me, I'd like to have an enormous focus on how we've burdened our actuarial qualification with things like normative skills, with things uh, that take the, the actuarial student out of the workplace, uh, and very often we are requiring them to formally do things which I think they acquire as part of the journey all along. I also get employers saying, have you got people that have done the same courses as your actuarial students but aren't doing the actuarial qualification route because I can pay them less and they're not going to get study leave and they're not going to leave. And I have to fight that, that all the time. And we will not produce actuaries um, if, if we don't solve that dilemma. And I think we, the other thing that we have to be very careful of is that while ideally all of us sitting here, I believe, wants to create fellow actuaries, we've instilled that mindset in our students that the road is to be a fellow actuary and we've solved what an actuary does um, and that's where they get the disconnect when they go into the workplace and they discover that they've got to start off um, as, as a techie and, and we tell them that that's the first, we try to tell them that is the necessary and important first phase of their journey but they don't necessarily believe it. And then the last thing I want to say on this, I think that the new syllabus 2019 um, is no better at data and analytics than the old syllabus. I think it, the, the institute and faculty have sold us a dummy. Um, when we've looked through the material, the amount of extra material that they've added is almost inconsequential. So it's, it's, a, it's a naming and flavoring. So when I show it to our statisticians and they look at it, and Joe said her statisticians at UCT are saying the same thing, so they go, is that it? Um, and I also worry, um, I can see in the new institute and faculty material um, a broadening but a, a lessening of depth. Um, and in many ways what we are going to be creating are chartered actuarial analysts. Um, and the distinction between the TASA, if we stick with what the UK is doing and the CAA is going to blur. And if I were to predict, I would predict that in 10 years' time, um, we will have reduced the need for the fellow actuaries quite dramatically um, because we, w well, let's put it this, so I'm, perhaps I'm rephrasing it wrongly. Employers will be employing CAAs, the institute and faculty will be having CAA as the entry step on the road to an AMASA. Um, and effectively will have dumbed down the whole profession. And there'll be very, very few facets or, or specialists that are required in narrow traditional areas where the Germans want them in life assurance, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's what we should really be focusing on today because do we want that? And I don't think, well, we don't want that, but does the public want that? Yeah, I think your last point was a valid one. That It's not necessarily about what ASA wants. It's about what employers want. And I think that's something we always have to keep in mind is that we have to develop a profession that employers want to use and want to employ. Uh, the last couple of points there uh, goes back to there's a definite disconnect between what you learn at varsity and then what you expected to do in your first six months to a year within the working environment. And how do we prepare students for the fact that the first six to six months to a year is data analytics work. That's what it is and that's what you have to do 
to to be able to do the later work and to understand the later work. So, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm increasingly starting to think that that if our goal as a profession is to to increase our numbers, to get into wider fields, to permit transformation, because trans, I mean, to, to me, that the the idea of transformation always starts with. If you want to transform profession, you need to have 4,000 actuaries rather than 1,000 actuaries because the, the, the existing ones are not going away. So, so there's always that, that idea of, of, of how do we do that, and, and the way to do that is, is about conquering these areas and taking ownership of, of spaces like data science and, and other wider, sort of wider fields, but now. Um, and it's just starting to look, I mean, we might not want many, many uh, different certifications, but you can't be, you can't teach them all of these things. You can't have an expert in all of these things, so it's going to go shallower, or we're going to have to have sub-specializations or sub-routes. Sub there is no way that you can do all of this and understand all the insurance stuff and understand all of that stuff. You need to find your path. And I mean, you don't have to have a different acronym for this because people can see what you've done. You can say, I'm an actuarial, a MESA or whatever. I've specialized in data science. You can say that you don't have to have a, all these acronyms attached to it, maybe. But we can't do all of this. Just um, on a more positive note, <laughs> so um, so the, the, the previous slide was my, my unhappy face, uh, it's this more happy face, is I still think that we attract some really, really smart people into the profession. I still believe that the profession is still held in very high regard due to our professionalism, ethics and so forth. Um, I also believe, and, and I mean, given that I hire both actuarial students as well as lots of data scientists, personally, um, I find that at the more, I would say, let's say senior consultant level, the actuarial students are far better at commercializing insights. I mean, a data scientist will play and play and play and play and play with the data, but an actuary can say, well, how do I take this and do something um, from a business point of view. So financial modeling type skills I think is absolutely key which is something that the, um, the, the, the more data science type programs don't really touch on and that is definitely a differentiator for us. But as, I mean, uh, being in, a, in an audit firm, um, the, besides the actual profession needing to change, the audit profession is busy changing and the use of the analytics in the way in which they develop their, their audit opinions is currently occurring. So they're also thinking about how do they make more data science type individuals in order to not use sampling in order to um, perform their, their audits, but to, to be more, have 100% coverage. In the same way, I think that we need to change the way in which um, we're applying our, our techniques in performing our work in order to help us um, remain relevant in the future. And as Michael Bell said, the only constant in our business is that everything is changing. We have to take advantage of change and not let it take advantage of us.